Well, as we've said already, today is the first Sunday of Advent, and our theme for the day is hope. And hope, of course, is really the theme of the whole Advent season. I know I drone on about this every year, but the tradition of Advent is not just pre-Christmas celebration, but a reflection on the state of affairs before the coming of Christ, the darkness of Israel's time in exile, and uh, we find in that uh, an expression of our own state of affairs. The Apostle Peter calls us aliens and strangers. Uh, we still live in a world that is, that is broken, and this is a time of, of expectation, waiting for Christ to return. So the Christian faith looks back to what Christ has already done for us in his first coming, and his death and resurrection, but also looks forward to when he will return in glory. As Paul says in uh, the book of 1 Thessalonians, you turned, from God, you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So the entire Christian life, as we know it now, is a life of waiting, of hope. And Advent is simply a, a tradition of contemplating this aspect of our faith once a year. We don't have to observe it, but it certainly is helpful to, to remember. As the days grow shorter and colder and the darkness grows around us, it's natural that our thoughts would turn to the promise of God to make all things new in Christ Jesus. So the world is broken. Uh, we see all over that it's not as it should be. We see it in the headlines and the news. We see it often in our lists of prayer requests that we share with each other. We share it, uh, we see it in our own lives and in ourselves. But the Word of God speaks hope. And this hope is not just wishful thinking or a positive attitude, as the Advent reading reminded us, but it is a confident expectation based on the promises of God in his word. It is that confidence that what God has promised in his word, he is both faithful and able to perform. It is a certain hope. And so this morning and throughout the Advent season, we'll be looking at what God has promised in his word, and we will in particular be looking at God's promises in the book of Isaiah. Why the book of Isaiah? Well, I've always wanted to do an Isaiah Advent thing, and I get to make that decision, so that's nice. Uh, but also, you know, we just saw in the closing of Luke's gospel, Jesus taught that the law of Moses and all the prophets, uh, their message was nothing less than his own death and resurrection, and whose name repentance and forgiveness of sin should be preached to all nations. So Christ said that the gospel is in the prophets, so it makes sense for us now to Simply look at the prophets and, and see how this is true. Uh, Isaiah preached to the uh, nation of Israel, to God's people. He called out their sins. He foretold the destruction that would come on to them because of their idolatry and their corruption. But Isaiah also paints a picture of hope, of restoration beyond that judgment. This hope is a it's a return from exile for the nation of Israel that he promises, but it goes so far beyond that, we'll see in his promises. This hope is a whole new creation, a cosmic reconciliation that opens, the, opens up the door even for 
Gentile nations. The fulfillment of God's promises to Israel are accomplished in Christ in such a way that the Gentiles are now grafted into those promises so that we too can say that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. So these promises are for us as well. Well, the passage that Sean read for us earlier is our sermon text for today from Isaiah chapter 11. And it's interesting that it's, uh, we, could, we could say in a sense it's a political hope uh, because Isaiah shows us that our hope is ultimately placed in a person, a ruler, a king. What other texts call the, the Messiah or the Christ, both Messiah and Christ simply mean anointed as an anointed king, God's chosen king. So through Isaiah, God promises us a king who will restore all that is broken in the world. His rule, uh, he will rule, rule the world, that's hard to say, he will rule the world with truth and grace and make the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. He comes to make his blessings known far as the curse is found. So we have this instinct, this kind of political instinct, I guess you could call it, every election cycle, to place a good deal of hope in one political leader or candidate or another. They make big promises and we convince ourselves that they actually have the intent or the ability to follow through on those promises, you know. Vote for Pedro and all of your wildest dreams will come true, right? Uh, our instinct, our instinct there, it's not entirely wrong because it will take the authority of a ruler to finally fix everything that is broken in this world, but you don't vote for this king. He is anointed, he is chosen by God, and Isaiah 11 tells us about him, who he is, the Christ who himself is our hope. So our primary goal with the sermon this morning is simply to turn our eyes to him. If you're taking notes, we will see, number one, who the Messiah is, number two, what the Messiah does, and number three, what the Messiah accomplishes. So who he is, what he does, and what the fruit of that is, what he accomplishes. So first, who is this king? I know the Sunday school answer, Jesus, is popping up in your head, but we'll, we'll, we'll get there. We'll see how Isaiah shows us this. Is we can divide the question who he is into two sub-points, his identity and his character. His identity is in verse 1 there. Uh, he is a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots that shall bear fruit. So you might be wondering, who is Jesse and why does he have a stump? I thought Jesse had a girl that everybody seemed to wish that they had, even though she won't cut fresh flowers for him, or will, will she? I don't know. Maybe Jesse is Bo and Luke's uncle, or uh, maybe he was the Olsen twins' uncle. I don't. How many uncle Jessies are there in the TV world? I don't know. I might be getting my pop references kind of confused here, but never mind all that. Jesse, this Jesse in the Bible, of course, if you're familiar with the story, was an ordinary man from a little town in Bethlehem who also happened to be the father of a shepherd boy who grew up to become King David, the man after God's own heart. And God had promised David that one of his descendants would rule on his throne forever. He made this covenant with David. 
But God is apparently going to cut off the line of David here like a lumberjack. That's, it's a tree stump, right? It's not like his, his, Jesse's arm got cut off and something weird is growing out of there. I don't know why I even just thought of that image. That's disturbing. But no, it's a tree stump. God cuts off the line of David. There's just a stump remaining, but there is life in the roots still. And from those roots, God will raise up a new shoot. A new tree will sprout. A new king from the line of David. And this tree stump is really a fitting image of the line of David at the time of Christ's coming. I believe there hadn't been a a Davidic king for about 600 years or so. Once again, out of humble circumstances, and once again in the little town of Bethlehem, from the line of Jesse, God raises up a king who will truly be after his own heart. So part of Christ's identity, at least in human terms, is that he is an Israelite king, true heir to the throne of David. But of course, what really jumps out to us here is his character, beginning in verse 2. We see that his character is ultimately shaped by the presence of the Spirit of the Lord that rests upon him. And the Gospels confirm that this is true of Jesus Christ. At his baptism, the Holy Spirit rested upon him like a dove, confirming, of course, by a fantastical aquatic ceremony that he is the king chosen by God. I was hoping that reference made it into my notes, but that same spirit then led him into the wilderness where he overcame the tempter. Jesus himself quoted a much later passage from the book of Isaiah as a kind of theme verse for his entire ministry. At the outset, he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. So his claim was clear. I am the king that Isaiah was writing about. I am the Christ. Now you might wonder why Jesus needs the Spirit upon him since he already is both fully God and fully man. If he's God, why does he even need the Spirit? Couldn't he do this without the Spirit? And I think the answer is that Jesus is the perfect human being, and so for Christ's human nature to be perfect, it must be empowered by the Spirit. See, I would argue we don't just need the Spirit because we are sinners. We need the Spirit because we are human creatures, and that is how we are designed to function. We were made for fellowship with God. We don't function properly apart from fellowship with God. And fellowship with our God, who is triune, who is one in three persons, has the Trinitarian shape. Glad submission to God the Father in unity with God the Son by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. So as our perfect substitute, Jesus fulfilled all righteousness as human beings were meant to, not independent from God, but in fellowship with God. So the Spirit empowers and shapes the character of the Christ And Isaiah shows us what this will look like using three word pairs uh, that you see in verse 2. The first two pairs, you've got wisdom and understanding, and then counsel and might. These basically have to do with the Messiah's wisdom, of course, as well as his power. His wisdom, his ability to, to see things as they are, to make right decisions, and then his power to both develop a plan or a strategy, that's what counsel means, and then to execute that plan. He has the power to do it. 
And those traits, in the Bible's view, are not just a matter of competence, but of character. True wisdom and understanding begin where? With the fear of the Lord, right? And even counsel and might are really empty apart from God. The Lord is the strength of his people. There is a sharp difference between the Messiah's brand of wisdom and might, wisdom and power, and the world's definition of wisdom and power. And nowhere do we see that more clearly than in the cross of Christ. As Paul wrote to the Corinthians, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So the wisdom of power, the wisdom and power of God are on display in an unexpected way, perhaps, in the cross of Christ. Although later on in the book of Isaiah, as we'll see, Lord willing, next week, Isaiah does bring out quite clearly that the Christ comes to, to suffer. It's an unexpected kind of wisdom. The, the Christ is a spirit-filled king full of wisdom and power, not of this world. Wisdom and power not rooted in the way the world works, but in knowledge and fear of God. And that's what that third pair of words shows us, that it's the spirit. He is the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Based on just the overall context here, I would argue that knowledge and fear there are both directed toward the Lord, toward God. The, the character and effectiveness of his rule flow from a right relationship with God. So knowledge of God, it's not just a good grasp on theology proper, able to articulate the attributes of God and the Trinity. This is a personal relational knowledge of God, knowing God as you know a person. So knowledge and, and fear, that respect, reverence for God, together they describe a right and proper attitude, right relationship of a creature toward our creator. So this king who is going to restore all creation to a right relationship with God must himself have that right relationship that the creature must have toward God. And that, relation, that, that right relationship is the Messiah's delight. Uh, in verse 3, uh, still talking about his, his character or who he is, in the first part there of verse 3, his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. The word delight there, just interesting side note, is related to the word for scent or aroma. So he can smell your fear, I guess. Smell your fear of God. Uh, he is pleased when he detects the scent of, of the fear of the Lord in those that he rules. It's not just interested, he's not just interested in enforcing external obedience. But as he himself is in a right relationship with God, he seeks to restore that relationship in others as well. He doesn't merely rule for his own enjoyment or at the, expe at the expense of his people. What he enjoys as a ruler is what benefits his people the most, bringing them into a right relationship with God. This is who he is. So this is his character 
This is our hope. Our hope is placed in a king whose power, whose policy are rooted in a character that is pure and godly, unwavering devotion to God's purposes, his character rooted in the very character of the God who is his delight. So if that's his character, our next question, what does the Messiah do? What does that character look like in action? And of course, Messiah is, as Messiah does. So picking up, continuing in verse 3 here, I guess uh, first tells us what he doesn't do. He will not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. Just a note there in their political system, the, the king and judge aren't separate offices. They didn't divide executive and judicial and legislative like we do or theoretically do. Uh, so he starts with what he won't do. He won't judge by what he sees and hears. I guess you could compare this maybe to the idea of, of blind justice, depending on what you mean by that. He's not distracted by outward appearances, but he sees into the heart of things, sees things as they truly are. So in positive terms, then, the next clause here, in verse 4, with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Equity is one of those hot-button words in our culture these days, but equity in Hebrew is, is related to the word for, for a, a plane, in the geographical term, not that they didn't have airplanes, so it's obviously not that kind, but a plain or a mesa, a tableland, it's a flat and level place. So Isaiah mentions justice for the poor and meek, not because he's going to give them some advantage over the rich and powerful, but because the rich and powerful in Israel had had an advantage over the poor and meek, which they absolutely uh, used uh, to take advantage of people in need instead of helping them as, as the law of Moses demanded. Uh, Israel, of course, is not unique in, in having this as part of their culture. The haves and haves-nots uh, seldom have a, a level playing field. Uh, but the point here is that Christ will judge with perfect righteousness and equity. He's not dazzled by anyone's wealth or clever argumentation. There is no dream team of lawyers you can hire that are going to sway him one way or the other. He sees things as they truly are, and he will judge with perfect righteousness. And that is bad news for the wicked. As we see continuing there with verse 4, he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. This is a heavy verse, but the, the reconciliation to come is not universal in the sense that everyone everywhere ends up reconciled. The wicked who persist in unrepentant wicked, wickedness are destroyed. And if that seems shocking or unfair, just remember the headlines, the atrocities you've heard about from history or those going on in the world today. You know, the idea of let's all just join hands and start a love train, it kind of falls flat in the face of, of torture and genocide and labor camps and forced abortions. But this goes beyond just sins against human beings as well. Consider the, the holiness of God. There is no place for the wicked in a world that is supposed to be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as waters cover the sea. 
There is real evil in the world and offense to God. It must be dealt with and it will be dealt with. All wickedness will be judged, whether on the cross of Christ or before the judgment seat of Christ. And Isaiah here says the Messiah will slay the wicked with the breath of his mouth. An image that reminds us of Christ in the book of Revelation with a sword in his mouth slaying his enemies. The meaning of this is that his word is the instrument of judgment. It is the judgment that he speaks. And this is at the very least a hint, uh, going back to who he is, that he's more than just a human being. In the Bible, it is really only the word of God that has this kind of power. He spoke the world into existence. He upholds all things by the word of his power. He speaks the word of judgment. This is an act of divine judgment that the Christ, the Messiah, enacts. And verse 5, I would argue, backs up the idea that there's more than just a, a human person here. There's this hint that he is both God and man. His belt is righteousness and faithfulness. Uh, compare that to Psalm 96, 13, where God is the one who comes to judge with righteousness and faithfulness. The Messiah's judgment, again, is divine judgment. The belt idea, by the way, might seem strange, or maybe you're just glad that our hope isn't a king who knows how to accessorize, uh, but there are no better accessories for a judge, certainly, than righteousness and faithfulness, but the idea of the belt is readiness, for readiness even for, for combat. So if you're thinking, starting to think, that Christ is looking too violent and warlike for us, remember that the point is not for us to go and to pour out our own judgment and wrath on our enemies since that's what the Christ will do. It's actually the opposite. Knowing that Christ is the judge, that judgment belongs to him, means we know it does not belong to us. Vengeance belongs to God. As Paul admonishes us in Romans, leave it to the wrath of God. Don't be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good. The doctrine of judgment here is meant to free us to live that way. If there's no judgment, we feel like we have to take care of it on our own. Knowing that God is a judge, uh, we are able to forgive, able to hold out the hope of forgiveness even to our enemies, to love our enemies as Christ commanded us to do. So we live in hope. Not that we're totally unconcerned for those around us, but we acknowledge that the world is full of darkness, that we don't have the power to overcome, and we must simply wait in confident hope that God has promised a king and judge who will come, who will fix it all. And that's what we come to see next, what the Messiah accomplishes, the fruit of his reign. And it's nothing less than the reconciliation of all creation, Consider verses 6 through 8 here. We won't go into detail for all of these, but the imagery is beautifully poetic, wonderful to read these every Advent season. In 6 and 7, you see some ancient and hardwired hostilities are completely reconciled. Lambs, of course, do not generally like wolves. Wolves do, of course, very much enjoy lambs, which is the problem. I enjoy lambs as well, nice, medium, rare. They're delicious, but... Here the predator and the prey are dwelling together in peace. The wolf actually, the word dwell is the word for sojourn. The wolf is sojourning with the lamb. The lamb is welcoming the wolf into his, 
his home almost. The Bible has room for both judgment of the wicked and reconciliation of enemies that we never ever thought could get along. Uh, even through transformation of those enemies. Verse 7, you see a, a bear is, is eating grass along with a cow and uh, the lion is eating straw like an ox. It's both beautiful and frankly, a little bit disturbing for those of us who do like lamb, right? Does that mean we're all going to be vegan in the new heavens and the new earth? And I'm not sure how literally to take this. Uh, I, I, I'd like to think that if, if we are limited to vegetables and glory, then in glory, vegetables you know, will taste good, or maybe steak will grow on trees, and the cows instead will be made out of kale or something like that. But Meanwhile, I'll just take comfort in the fact that Lord Jesus, in his resurrected state, ate some broiled fish. So there's, there's hope for us as, as omnivores. But the key, I think, what Isaiah is really getting at here is that Christ's reign brings this peace and reconciliation, not just to those who were his people at the time, but to the whole of God's creation. The cosmic order is restored. And it's remarkable, this even includes snakes. Little kids playing around a cobra's den makes you anxious as a parent just thinking about it. But, you know, we're not actually sure exactly what kind of venomous snakes that the Hebrew words here represent. It doesn't necessarily make a lot of difference, although it's interesting. The King James Bible famously says that one of them is a cockatrice, right? Which is a sort of dragon with the head of a rooster that can kill people just by looking at them. It probably wasn't that, but the serpent, of course, is the form that Satan, the tempter, took to launch his attack on God's creation. And it is striking here that even the snakes are reconciled to the most vulnerable of human beings, a nursing or newly weaned child. Satan himself is not going to be saved. We know that. He'll be cast into the lake of fire. But every last trace of his influence on this world will be erased, will be forgotten. So even the snakes aren't going to remind us of him and his dangers anymore so that a child can play with a snake. So everything from snakes to cows to grazing bears will point us to the knowledge of God. That is what we read here in verse 9. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as waters cover the sea. This is the kind of world that the king's reign will bring. And it's quite a metaphor because waters, if you think about it, they don't just cover the sea, they kind of are the sea. If you're a fish, water is your whole world, right? Imagine the whole world is like that. Everywhere you look, a reminder of God as your good and loving creator and savior and redeemer. Because this isn't, again, just head knowledge about God. It's not that doctrinal discussions of the eternity and attributes of God are plastered over every rock and tree so you can read about theology wherever you go. That would be fun for maybe a couple of us here, but obviously this isn't merely intellectual knowledge. This is personal knowledge. The whole world knows its creator in a perfectly reconciled relationship. We can have a taste of that here. The heavens are still telling the glories of God. We still sing, this is my father's world, right? Everywhere I, I look, I'm reminded of him. Imagine that, but it's, it's inescapable. See and know the love of God everywhere you go. You see, when God made the earth, 
He, he broke off a tiny piece of it, right, and shaped it into an image of himself, which he called the man, the human being, so that his rule over the world would be represented by that little piece of dust that he made capable of knowing him, and, and through his descendants, through them, the world would come to know and reflect his glory. We're not merely the universe seeking to understand itself, but we are the creation designed to know its creator. And we dropped the ball on that, right? We suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. We decided we didn't want to know God, and we would represent our own rule instead. And in so doing, we just became slaves, slaves to sin, slaves to the serpent. But Isaiah holds out the hope of a Messiah who succeeded where we failed, who is a new and better Adam, perfectly reflecting that right relationship with God, perfect knowledge of God, and through his reign, all creation will be reconciled to God so that the earth is filled with the knowledge of the Lord as waters cover the sea, exactly as it was made to be, meant to be from the beginning. This Messiah who redeems a people by his blood ultimately will reverse the curse, reconcile creation to God. This is Colossians chapter 1. He is before all things. In him all things hold together. He is the head of his body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. In many ways, Isaiah and Paul are in lockstep here. Not only do they agree that the Christ restores creation to what God made it to be, but they also follow that up with the implication, the important implication of this cosmic restoration, which is that, as Isaiah puts it, this root of Jesse will be a signal for all peoples, a signal or standard, some translations uh, have it. I, I think I was looking at an earlier edition of the, the ESV that said standard here. Uh, standard not in the sense of something for you to measure up to or a, a standardized test. He's not saying Jesus is the true and better SAT. Although, again, that might be fun for one or two of us. I kind of liked you know, filling out the little ball. You get your number two pencil, it's just great. Wonderful times, but the memories. I wish I could, wish I could go back and do it. No, I don't, but I kind of a little bit. Never mind, but th this is a standard in the sense of a, a banner. In a battle, you raise a banner as a rallying point for your people, give them something tangible to look to and, and rally behind. And so Christ is saying, Isaiah is saying that Christ will be raised like a banner, and as he is lifted up, he will draw all peoples to him. He is the rallying point, not just for Israel that Isaiah is preaching to, but the nations will inquire of him. And the word for nations is, is goyim, it's the Gentiles. So again, these promises are not just for Israel, but through God's promise to Israel, all families of the earth will be blessed. These promises are for us. This is our hope that we look forward to in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is what the season of Advent 
is about. Because Christ came and died for us, we are redeemed, restored in him. We are saved from the judgment that is foretold here and this restored new creation. That is what we look for, the resurrection of the body and the life of the world to come. But of course, it's not just about us. Look at the last phrase there. His resting place shall be glorious. And actually, uh, Isaiah uses the noun there, not the verb. His resting place shall be glory. When Christ has finished the work he began 2,000 years ago with his death and resurrection, and the work that he continues today by the Spirit through the church, the work that is completed when he returns in glory to judge the living and the dead, when the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever, when the knowledge of the Lord covers the earth and the waters covers, as the waters cover the sea, this is the ultimate beauty that's restored, that all the glory will belong to Jesus. His resting place, his dwelling place will be with us, with his people, and that resting place shall be glory. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we confess, we acknowledge that we are sinful people, that we have various times and various ways sinned against you by what we have done, by what we have left undone, that we have not been who and what you made us to be, people who live in this right relationship of glad submission to you and yet ruling over this earth and in your place representing your rule for your glory which is for our own good as, as well as the good of your creation but we have turned against you and the result of that we acknowledge is the all the pain and all the suffering that we see in the world around us, and uh, we, we come to you uh, lamenting as well uh, the pain and the loss and the grief that is in many of our hearts uh, this morning, uh, the fears and the uncertainties. Uh, this Advent season, we remember that the world is broken and that life is not as it should be. Acknowledge that this is a joyful season for many as it is also mixed with pain and, and heartache for many, thinking of uh, those who are no longer at the Christmas table with us and uh, thinking of the, the stresses and anxieties that, that come with this season. It's a reminder that the world is deeply broken as we ourselves are deeply broken. But help us to focus our hearts on your
promises. We are often faltering, our, our faith is often weak, our love is often cold. We ask that you would strengthen our faith, fan the flames of our love for you. Help us as we focus on the first coming of Christ as well as his return in these next few weeks to grow in our confidence of what we have been taught in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us to rest our hearts on what you have promised when everything around us is uncertain or broken and painful, may our hearts find rest in you. May we stand firm on the solid rock that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We ask these things in his name.